Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts. This is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 110. Last week we saw where Jesus was beginning to issue his series of woes to the, let's say, the unhealthy Pharisees and scribes that were (laughs) not living up to the correct standard of Torah. Um, And we kind of summarized them. We said the first woe he said was that these individuals were hindering, preventing entrance into the kingdom uh, through their, the the way that their piety almost puts a, a burden or a weight on the people that they're supposed to be leading. And it's actually creating a stumbling block for them to be able to understand how to invite the attributes of the kingdom into their lives through pursuing righteousness. Um, The second woe that we talked about was evangelism, where Jesus was saying that these individuals go to very far regions to make proselytes, people converting to Judaism, and then after that conversion, they kind of leave them to their own devices and kind of abandon them, and they become just as much of a child of hell and destruction and brokenness as these scribes and Pharisees were themselves. Um, The third woe was um, swearing oaths. Jesus was talking about how these individuals were crafting their words very coy-like and sly-like to be able to go back on their word concerning things of the temple and uh, offerings and tithes and... um, we we talked about how previously Jesus had said like don't make oaths, but it's more of a heart issue. Like if if you're going to say something, God expects you to follow through on your word and be honest and and te- full of integrity on carrying that out, rather than being deceitful, um, like we've seen so many characters in the biblical story before. Um, and then True. the last woe was the weighty matters. And Jesus was talking about how these individuals were tithing mint and dill and cumin. They're all great things. They're all good things. Um, but they're like putting more emphasis on having themselves and people perform adherence to those rulings rather than the weightier matters, the more important matters of the law, which are promoting justice and mercy and yeah. faithfulness and forgiveness in, in our reality. Yeah, that's yeah, it's good stuff. And again, we we talked about how these are very specific and and designed for the Pharisees, the things that we saw specifically in the sect of the Pharisees. But it's funny how all of these, uh, in some way or another, some more than others or whatever, but they apply to us today. It's really good stuff. And if I remember correctly, I'm surprised you left this out. If I remember, we also wrote a rap song right at the end of the last episode. So everybody might want to go back and listen to that, you know, just so you're hip and cool like <laughs> us. So anyway, let's keep going then. We're, we're going to finish the woes, we hope. Uh, we're on number five. This is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you 
clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, just a side note, Samuel, have you ever known your cups or plates to have greed or self-indulgence on them? <laughs> I don't typically anthropomorphize uh, my silverware, cupware. Yeah, very, very strange. But obviously, we know what he's doing there. They are the cup and the plate, right? That kind of thing. So anyway, let's, let's go ahead. I'm going to call this one, um, this is dealing with inside and outside, and of course, it's talking about us, but whatever. Let's, let's go ahead. Just imagine, Samuel, that someone in your house actually did the dishes this way. They washed, you know, the bottom side of the plate, but they ignored the top where the food was, right? And, and they washed the outside of the cups, but they ignored the inside where the drink was. And then they let them air dry and they just stick them back in the cabinet. Now, one thing is if you were to walk in, let's pretend you had those fancy cabinets with the glass doors. If you just looked right there in the cabinet, they would look great. But then you come along and you pull one out and you want to use it for your lunch or whatever you're going to eat, and you see all the dried-on food gunk or the drink, you know, whatever, and... It's kind of gross. It's kind of offensive. It's just kind of ew. And so what's funny is way back in the day, even before Jesus's time, there was a real life debate between, we've talked about them before, Shammai and Hillel. And Shammai, you know, using this same kind of uh, analogy or, or symbolism, imagery, he thought that the inside and the outside could be treated separately for the purposes of determining a vessel's purity status. So even though we look at this and it just seems like an interesting sort of of image that Jesus is using, he's actually pulling up a real-life debate of the time. So Shammai thought, look, let's say you've got something that's, you know, supposed to be ritually pure for whatever reason, a cup, a bowl, whatever it might be and you only clean the outside of it, well, the outside, he said, well, it was pure, ritually pure, but the inside wasn't. Hillel, on the other hand, he thought that, no, that can't be. It is one vessel. If it is unclean in any area, then the whole thing was unclean. So, in a way, Jesus is actually weighing in on this real-life debate that was going on, saying, no, guys, it's all got to be clean. You've got to, it, it's either ritually pure or it is not. You can't have some of it is and some of it isn't. So that's kind of interesting. But Jesus here, he, he's, in, he's emphasizing how these particular scribes and Pharisees, they were actually like these plates and cups. When all that anyone can see is the outward appearance, you know, from a distance, well, they they look grand. They look fine. But upon closer inspection, we find that they're covered with a gunk. And in this case, Jesus is naming the gunk as greed and self-indulgence. Now, 
Just because it specifically applies to them, we've already talked about this, we shouldn't think that it doesn't apply to us. This is people everywhere, and even Christians, or (laughs) because we're the ones that actually care about the rules, maybe especially Christians. Now, our gunk may be a little different. Maybe it's not exactly greed and self-indulgence, or maybe it is, but even in, in like, this is like one of the nice ways we do it, if, if you want to say it that way. We're quick to put on a brave face or to keep up appearances. Now, it's often done to avoid embarrassment or, or shame, right? And, and it's really not healthy for us to do. But it doesn't have to be something as simple as putting on a face or keeping up appearances. We might really be hiding some some especially bad things, like greed and self-indulgence. Now, to be fair, these scribes and Pharisees, they were, you know, a little bit different, at least than most of us, I think. They were putting on a show not because they were trying to avoid embarrassment or to avoid shame. They were putting on a show to be admired, to be praised, to be esteemed, to be respected. Now, I bet you've probably met some people in your life that are like that too. And I would say, it doesn't make me right, I would say that that's objectively worse. But, you know, the thing is, Jesus has an answer to their problem. And it's simple. May not be easy, but it's simple. If you will truly clean the inside of yourself, the outside will be clean also. Now, Some might look at that and go, but wait a second, doesn't that match with Shammai more than Hillel? (laughs) Well, no, you got to hear and understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. And you see that when, when you're fixed on the outside, that would be fixed on the inside. Thank you very much. Whatever comes out of the mouth, whatever comes out of the heart, It's going to be clean. It's going to be good. So anyway, you won't need to avoid embarrassment or shame. You won't need to seek admiration or praise or respect. Those things, the admiration, the praise, respect, they may actually be a natural byproduct. And you never know. It It might be to such a degree that it starts to be uncomfortable. I don't like this admiration. I don't like this praise. I don't like this, right? I'm being single out. But that's all kind of in God's hands, right? You do your part. Make sure you clean the inside. And how do we do that? Samuel, how do you clean out the inside of your human plate or cup? How do you do that? Uh, Repentance. Yeah. And, And, okay, so repentance means you turn from not doing God's will to doing God's will. So if you're turning away from you and your own self and your your own way of defining good and evil, what are you turning to? Turn into God's instruction, the the Torah. Exactly. Yeah. And and when you seek out what is what the law is leading you to, it's not I don't want to say it's not about the letter of the law because it, there are many instances where the letter is important, it's good. But more important than that is the ideal behind it, what it's leading you to. And so, yeah, that's the thing that cleans us out. So there you go. Woe number five. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is really good, too. I'm I'm not sure whether Jesus had this in mind when he brought this woe up, but it's almost additionally getting to the heart of um, avoiding 
vulnerability and transparency in your life. Um, because if you're masking these things that you're struggling with, that you're prone to giving into, whether it's greed or self-indulgence or whatever kind of sin category you want to insert there, uh, it doesn't that doesn't give people around you in community the opportunity, the space to be able to come alongside you and assist you in that battle or that struggle. So I, I think that it, for me, it, it sheds light on the need to rid myself of those masks to, you know, to be able to swallow my pride to share with others like, hey, this is actually something I'm struggling with. I'm not doing very well. And it might be surprising for us all to see the results from that uh, when other people come into our lives to try to support, lift you up. um, And, you know, even for these Pharisees, like that could have changed their outcome, too. Yeah, the thing is, you, you remind me, you remind, this is like the classic church example. You got the husband, wife, kids, whatever it is, they're driving to church, and everybody is just at each other's throats. It's a horrible morning, whatever. They pull in that church parking lot, they pop out of that car, and everybody's smiling and happy and bubbly and touchy-feely, huggy, all that. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous, is what it is, and and probably we've all done it and why we we talked about it right you're just trying to you know keep up that appearance or whatever but yeah it's not good for us it's not good and and it doesn't mean we need to come in and just start you know throwing bombs at our spouses <laughs> in the middle of church or whatever and it's not that either but you can at least be a little more honest and transparent about it. yeah it's good samuel anything else nope all right so this next one number six i think is it's it's closely related to number five that we just did. Very interesting in that it, it seems like almost a repeat, but whatever, we're going to go ahead with it. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I'm sure you can kind of hear the uh, similarities, at least. And I forgot to mention uh, that this... this uh, Matthew 23, 27, 28, there's also sort of a matching verse from Luke 11, verse 44. It's very, very short. But anyway, that's included. So so what are we going to call this one, Samuel? Whitewashed tombs. That seem good? <laughs> yeah. Number six, right? And again, it's very similar to the cup and plate, except instead of greed and self-indulgence, now we're talking about hypocrisy and lawlessness and uh, a side note, notice, being without the law, lawlessness, it's always a bad thing in your Bible. I'm just saying. Something to, to hang on to. But it's the same kind of problem. They only look good on the outside when the important part is on the inside. 
So one little cultural tidbit for the pilgrimage festivals. I know we've talked about this where three times a year, Jews from all over Israel, and sometimes they would even come from the diaspora, even though they weren't required, but they would all travel to Jerusalem. Now, when I say all, okay, I don't mean every single one, but okay, big, big numbers. They would all travel to Jerusalem for the festivals and go home. So they're pilgrimage festivals. Well, when they had those, graves were marked in some way so that the travelers going from wherever they lived to Jerusalem, they could avoid accidentally becoming ritually unclean. And one popular way of marking them was with lime. Now, you'll hear, you'll read about or hear different stories, whatever. Some suggest that they were rubbing limestone to, to leave marks, right? You, you could mark things with it. Some suggest that it was spread like a powder. You know, they just throw a bunch of powder all over this thing and it would stick long enough people could see. And then some think that it was actually like they mix, just, I'm assuming water and the powder or something like that. So it was actually kind of like a whitewash and they would you know, do the equivalent of painting around, and it wouldn't last forever. It was only a short time. I don't know what they really did. I wasn't there, whatever. But they would mark these tombs with something that was white. And so whitewashing tombs, you, you get the imagery, right? Now, there have even been some, again, I don't know if it's true or not, but because they were out and, and whitening up these tombs, they would also do other little things to kind of decorate. You know, the way that we decorate gravestones and, and things like that. We might do flowers or whatever that, you know, maybe it was in some way similar to that. I, I don't know. But it's, it's at least easy to see that this particular imagery, the idea of a whitewashed tomb, whatever that looked like, well, that would have been well-known, easy to grasp, and, and probably pretty impactful because, you know, they lived in a world where you had to stay ritually clean and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, there's that. And then also, I don't know if you remember this, Samuel, it was a little while back, but one of our friends, Aslan, brought up this story, uh, Tiberius. It's a city. Herod Antipas built the city on graves. And the city was beautiful in appearance from the outside, but from the Jewish perspective, within it was full of dead people's bones. And so Jews pretty much refused to live there, and in fact, many would refuse to even travel through it, although you got to figure it has to depend on where they're going, why they're going, the timing, whatever. Could they would it be okay to be ritually impure for some time or whatever? But it was great because Aslan was pointing out how this is such a good image of the idea of filled with dead people's bones. Hmm. That city was another representation of that. But anyway, there you go. Whitewashed tombs, bad on the inside. If you clean the inside, you're good on the outside. Very much like the plate in the cup. What do you got, Samuel? Um, I, I don't have a whole lot concerning the woe itself other than a reminder i guess I, I know you and i have talked about it paul i'm trying to rack my brain to remember if we brought it up previously in the podcast but it just reminded me that this section of scripture in the gospels in particular 
the reader hears over and over this phrase, uh, and I, I hate it that I've just now remembered to bring it up at woe six uh, <laughs> rather than at woe <laughs> one, but Jesus says over and over, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think it's a um, common tendency among the Western evangelical church for readers to just literally transpose um interpolate Pharisee and hypocrites to to where their mind, when they either continue on or they finish reading and they go back and reread, any time that they see Pharisee, they just automatically associate, oh, Pharisee just means hypocrite in the Gospels and the biblical story. And I'm not saying that that's not somewhat true, but it should not be fundamentally true because I know one thing that you taught me to like kind of practice is that you uh, you could put any group or community of people who are living incorrectly in that statement. You could say, woe to you, Christians, hypocrites, or woe to you, hateful Jewish people, or what, 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 whatever uh, faith. <laughs> Pick a group, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up as a reminder to, to fight against letting your mind do that because it's going to cause problems for you like going forward um, and then – you know, on your own time studying the Gospels, too. Yeah, a lot of people do exactly what you say. They, they, it's as if they believe if they went to the Webster's Dictionary or a Bible Dictionary or something, and they looked up the word Pharisee under the definition, it would simply say hypocrite. And that is not true. Not in that way. But they did do a lot of hypocritical things. They're they're a good example for us of what not to be, but, you know, that, yeah, good point. Anything else? Nope. All right. Well, this next one, whoo, it's kind of long. In fact, it's long enough that it makes us say, whoa, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but let's see. We are covering, uh, what do we got here? Oh, this is another one of those sections where I'm bringing in some of Luke. So it's Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 51. But we're going to be reading from Matthew, it's chapter 23, verses 29 through 36. It says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers... We would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay. I, 
I'm guessing there are many, many different ways that people can look at all of the stuff contained in here. Obviously, we're going to share our favorite way, whatever. But no matter how you slice it, this just sounds bad. I don't know how anybody could come away from this with something super positive, right? So anyway, what do we call this? Tombs of the Prophets. That's what I had down here. Number seven, Tombs of the Prophets. Now, here's the thing, though. We just read that, and I'm going to say I think that it's easier to get the overall point of what's being said than it is to actually understand the details. And in a way, the details kind of make it harder. So let's go ahead and at least talk about the overall point. So for you scribes and Pharisees, for all of your show, for all of your pomp and circumstance, you really are no different than your fathers, all who came before you. They killed the prophets that were sent to them. And you, you're going to do the same. It's judgment and Gehenna for them and judgment and Gehenna for you. In fact, since you will kill God's ultimate and true prophet, his Messiah, his son, you, specifically meaning this generation, you will bear the punishment for all generations. Now, this isn't to say that the earlier generations aren't going to bear any. This generation just gets in on it all, if that makes sense. So that's like the overall point. So let's stop there, Samuel. Does that at least make sense? Seem good? Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. So a couple of things. If if we're kind of comparing Matthew 23 verses 29 to 33 with what happened over in Luke 11, 47, 48, Matthew reads a little bit weird. It says, you are taking care of the tombs. You are building monuments. And you believe you've learned from others' mistakes. Therefore, you're just like them? What? Mm-hmm. I, it, I, maybe it's just me, but that doesn't seem like an obvious conclusion. And oh, by the way, can I sneak back up here just for a second when it says, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of prophets. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast, can you just stop for a second and recognize how much that sounds like you at different times? You look back, you see these stories, you this, 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 and you're just thinking, man, how could they do that? You're being just like them and you'll probably do it again. (laughs) <laughs> but just just recognize it so you can hopefully have a little more insight, maybe even a little empathy for the people involved in the story and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, back to the not obvious conclusion. Luke, you know, he kind of helps a little, but it's only a little. Now, I want to show you what Luke says. Uh, what verses was I reading here? 47, 48. It says, Woe to you, For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. So you sort of get this 
I don't know, somehow this act of building the tombs or beautifying the tombs, it makes them witnesses to their ancestors' wrongs or wrongdoings, and not just witnesses, but more like agreeing witnesses. At least that's the way it's being presented here. And it's not only that, well, I guess another way to say it, they're they're consenters. They're going along with it somehow, because they killed them, and now you're turning around and building their tombs. So somehow that makes you the same. Now again, for me, this is not overly obvious why, at least as far as the tombs and the monuments go, but but we do, we can at least understand whether we get it or, or would like naturally agree or whatever. We get what's being said, what's being communicated. This generation is no different than the preceding generation. And that's, you know, the real point. Humans might think they've evolved in some way, but... Even though so many things about humanity we can look at and say, you know, that is very different. That is very different across time. It's true. But at the same time, we all act pretty much the same when it really gets down to it. All of the same inclinations and tendencies, they're all just there. They just are. So anyway, there's that. Now, Matthew, he includes this phrase to fill up then the measure of your father's. And in a way, this is like saying, complete the work that your fathers started. They have abused or killed all the prophets that have come before. So, you know what? Why don't you guys just go ahead and do the same with those that come in your lifetime? And and it's more than just a suggestion. It's more like, this is what you're going to do. Now, Matthew also includes... How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And this, you know, again, we always try and get a hold of that word hell because, okay, what it's really saying is something like, how are you as, you know, true sons of your fathers, how are you going to avoid judgment and punishment in Gehenna? Okay, and and we always keep, we, we point this out because... We're not talking about the mythological hell that is so popular in American Christianity. This is Gehenna. It's in the grave. It's that time of death after we die in our physical bodies and before resurrection. That's what's being talked about here. But still, the question, how are you going to escape that? And it's it's an important question. Now, we've also got another one here, Matthew 23 34, and then we're going to compare that with Luke eleven forty nine. 49. So Matthew reads as if Jesus is going to send more prophets, more wise men, more scribes, etc., so that this generation can abuse them and kill them. And this is going to prove that they are just like their fathers. And to whatever degree we go along with this line of thinking, I I think we would have to say that this would obviously then include John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, I know technically it wasn't Jewish people that killed them, right? But they certainly, you know, in one way or another, they played their role. Now, it also seems likely that it's going to include the apostles and even other disciples. And so uh, what we're going to do is kind of look ahead a little bit and say, hey, 
the destruction of the temple, okay, that seems to mark the end of this generation. So the, the, the typical rule was 40 years for a generation, but I don't think we need to take that super literally and draw lines, whatever. Now, Luke, it could be read in a similar way, but I'm going to read it real quick. Luke eleven forty nine 49 says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now, that's really interesting because some look at Luke's statement and they see in it, you know, he's not talking about that current generation and that he's going to send more people like we talked about, John the Baptist, Jesus, apostles, disciples, whatever. They're saying, no, that's really recalling God's thoughts concerning the events that have already passed. God had already said, I'm going to send them the prophets and things, and now we can see, in hindsight, they've already killed them. Now, okay, both interpretations, I think, can can fit with whatever follows, and so I guess you can kind of choose which one makes sense to you, or probably even better, maybe you could just hold both of those in tension. Maybe you could say, you know what? Uh, we can see how this lines up with the way Matthew seems to be communicating it, and you know, some other people look at it this way. Yeah, I, you know, I see both, whatever. I don't have to make a decision. I'm just going to live with that. Either way, what we do see is that Jesus is more clearly acting in the role of a prophet right in this little section. This is what's going to happen kind of stuff. And that's always kind of cool. So that's another one. And yet there's more. Uh, this is a Matthew chapter 23, verses 35 and 36. We're going to compare that to Luke's 11, uh, 50 and 51. And, and in this case, though, whereas the two before, I mean, they, they, were, they were pretty different. Not like, oh my gosh, these are irreconcilable, but, you know, seemed to be a very different point of view. Now they pretty much agree. So this particular generation is going to be, in some sense, responsible for and feel the weight of judgment for many generations. Now, again, I have to say this. Notice we're not talking about all Jews. We're not talking about forever. We're not talking about all of Israel for all time, okay? This is a single generation. But what does it say? From Abel to Zechariah is... Well, what do we call it? Let's say that it's more than literal. A lot of times we try to tell people, hey, don't be so literal. In this case, I think you should be literal, but you shouldn't even stop there. It goes it goes beyond literal, right? So uh, these two people, they're literally included, and, and this is a way of saying all. Just like we might say phrases like from head to toe or from top to bottom or inside and out, whatever. Jesus, it's a way of using picturesque speech from Abel to Zechariah. Now, there is some controversy, though, over which Zechariah is being spoken of here. And this is, I don't know, things you never think of when you're reading. Some think that it's Zechariah the prophet, the one that has a book that's in your Old Testament, etc. And so, on the positive side, hey, his father's name matches, at least depending on your text or whatever. But we do have a problem in that Zechariah, 
you know, we have no record of how it was that he died, which is a little weird because this seems to be kind of a noteworthy story. So why is that not recorded anywhere? And that, of course, means, well, if it was like that, that seems like a really big detail to leave out. And again, I mentioned some, the father's name isn't even included in all the texts, and and maybe it got added later, which means it could have been an addition, and it could have been an incorrect addition, or whatever. So, I, mean, I don't know. Some think it's Zechariah the prophet, but there are problems with that. Others think it is Zechariah. It's a guy from back in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 through 22. And so, why do people think that? Well, because this guy specifically died in a manner that kind of fits with what Jesus is talking about here. But we have a problem. His father is listed as, well, geez, how am I going to say this? Jehoiada. <laughs> Whatever. And, and the thing is, when we say that his father has the wrong name, it's complicated because well, maybe they thought that he was the important person to anchor as the ancestor, and so he doesn't necessarily have to be his literal father. He could have been a grandfather or, you know, something like that. So, again, uh, we've got the problem, though, that Berechiah, it could have been added later as an addition, and it could have been added as an incorrect addition, right? We, We don't know. So, Whatever it is, we don't know which guy it is, and in some ways it doesn't matter, but uh, it would sure be nice to know. I think, honestly, I kind of lean towards Zechariah the prophet, but I don't I don't know. this. Uh, you know what? Now I'm changing my mind. I don't know who it is. But in Matthew, here's what we do know. Jesus is charging the murder of Zechariah, whoever the heck he was. He's charging that murder to his audience, whom you murdered. Now, some people would look at that and go, well, maybe there was another Zechariah that was alive at Jesus's time. Okay, maybe. But notice how it fits with the overall story. All the things of the previous generations are going to come upon you. So anyway, very interesting. And now in some ways, uh, you might have this question. Samuel, I'll even ask you, we just talked about all this stuff, and there's this generation of Jews in Israel. The Messiah comes to them. They refuse him, generally speaking, and that generation is going to receive severe judgment because of this. Does it seem unfair to you that this generation would have to bear the entire burden of all those other generations upon themselves? It does seem a little harsh, especially thinking about those that weren't in the same spot as these scribes and Pharisees that Jesus has given these woes to. I know, and I feel the same way. We sit around and we just think, I mean, just imagine, what if your dad had done some things, or your grandpa had done some things, or your great-grandpa had done some things, and somehow you end up getting in trouble for, I don't know, something— and somebody comes down and says, you know what? We're going to take everything that your great-grandpa and your grandpa and your dad, we're, all of that, you're going to get punished for all of it. You'd be going, what? That, that's not right. <laughs> Even if I'm a bad guy, that's not fair. So 
I was I was trying to figure out and now I wish I'd paid attention to where I got this from because this was really smart thinking. I, I loved when somebody pointed this out. So we should think of it this way. The nation of Israel, imagine from their very beginning, they had been messing up generation after generation after generation after generation. And then finally, when we get around, you know, the minus 500, 600 BC, whatever, God finally exiles them to Babylon. That generation that was alive at 570-something B.C., whatever the date that you go with, 580-something, that generation, in a sense, by being exiled from the land, taken to Babylon, right, they bore the judgment of all of the previous generations, Do you see how that image kind of works? Similarly, you get to 70 AD when when these guys are alive, and they, that generation, is going to bear the burden for all the previous generations. They're going to suffer the loss of the temple and Jerusalem itself. And, right, another, I don't know if we should say it's another beginning of exile, but, you know, it's definitely a really, really high point in the whole exile story. And so, if, if we at least look at it that way, it brings it uh, maybe maybe not quite so weird and out of balance. Does that help, Samuel? Uh, to some degree. I, I have yeah. more questions and things I'm wanting to wrestle with. Um, Go with it. Well, I actually need to back up first because I had something before <laughs> this thing about the generation bearing the burden. Um, oh, okay. Man, this woe itself... Um, you had said a statement. Um, oh, you had said the the statement that Matthew puts in Philip in the measure of your fathers, and you had said like it's kind of like saying complete the work your fathers had started, and they've abused and killed before, and you're going to do the same with those in your lifetime. It. Oh, we talked about this last week on how the the glimmers of hope within these woes are few and far between. They're hard to find. It, it <laughs> just, it feels so, de- I don't want to say defeatist, but it's almost like I get the sense that there's the way that that language is being evoked, that there's a, a point of no return for these people that Jesus is calling out. It's like, he's saying like, you've already made up your minds and it's tough to hear because, like, you want to hear, like, in my mind, I want to hear Jesus say, like, it's not too late. Like, repent. Right. Like, come back. You still have a chance to make this right before all this stuff is about to happen with me and my death and everything. But he he doesn't go about responding that way. And that's just, for me, that's just really hard in this moment to, to grapple with that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think I think I have something that might help a little bit. Because I think that there is, it always sounds like I'm hedging, but both things remain true. And here's what I mean. If you look from a national perspective, or maybe you don't even have to go that big. You could just say from, you know, the sect of the Pharisees perspective or something like that. Then when you're looking at it as a whole or as a group, then you can say, yeah, it does seem like there's really no opportunity to turn around. And and again, it's I don't think it's that, you know, Jesus is going, all right, I'm going to make it so that you guys 
screw it up forever. You know, it's it's a little more like Pharaoh. You already are in this place, and you're just going to keep doing it. And if at some point it got so bad that you couldn't keep it up, God might actually help you keep your original position, <laughs> right? But the point is, from a, from a, a national perspective, a group perspective, a big perspective, it's like there is no hope. This is what's going to happen. You've blown it, and Jerusalem, the temple, everything is going to get destroyed. But that doesn't negate the possibility for a single individual personal change. Mm -hmm. There will be those. And I think as we continue the story, especially in the book of Acts, I think we're going to see that that still happens, the individual personal change. And so in it's in that way that I think both things can remain true, and it, it's just like, hey, you know, the prophets, the pre-exilic prophets who were saying, hey, you're going to get taken away into exile, it, it was a done deal. They couldn't avoid it, but there were certain ones who who didn't sort of bear the burden as much as others because their individual personal stance was different. Does that help? Definitely. Yeah, it's a... It's just tough regardless. These are weighty things that we're studying right now. They really are. Yeah, this is kind of a downer section, but you know what? We've talked about this. Where do the most effective changes in our life often occur? We think of it as those times when we are in the wilderness or the desert or something that's really uncomfortable, things that we don't like and we wish our life would change, that's often when we grow, mature from like a, you know, think of it as a spiritual perspective mm -hmm. or a Christian perspective or whatever. And so sometimes you've got to hear this stuff because it, it, it teaches you, it helps you grow. Mm -hmm. So these Pharisees need it. And again, I think in all of these, we can we can easily translate them to our own personal lives, and it's it's important stuff. It's good yeah. stuff in its own way. Um, well, let let me continue the uh, valley of shadow of death uh, vibes <laughs> happening right now. Uh, with Do it. The, the very last point that you brought up about the unfair nature of this generation bearing the burden, um, my mind went back to. Um, Exodus uh, chapter 34 and this the section is like verses 4 through uh, 7 and it um, it's like God giving Moses the new stone tablets and he's passing in front of Moses uh, and this is after like Moses saying like I want to see you I want to know you who you are and then God responds by like uh, in traditional Judaism it's like God stating the 13 attributes of himself yeah. um, but then in verse 7 the 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 point to all this it says this is like in the middle of him describing God's attributes God says like maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation now that's a very hard verse for me to read, probably anyone to read. Um, and the only thing I have to offer is that I have 
heard through specifically Marty Solomon's teaching uh, to show that this is showcasing the vast difference in magnitude between like God's love in the number of generations to this like retri- uh, retributive justice that's present. Like you, we should look at the beginning of verse seven to say, "Look, he's main." Uh, some translations say maintaining love to a thousand generations, and right. the uh, the justice that's only that's present in this is only to the third and the fourth generation out of those thousands. So. Yeah. It, it it still doesn't help the problem because I it's a tough pill to swallow that this this concept of like parents and ancestors actions coming back to kind of haunt progeny after them. But it I don't I don't know if you, if you can take this and add it. I just wanted to bring it up because it it definitely seems relevant to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 a great picture and it. It's it's good that it's raising these questions in you or in any of us. I think Marty Solomon, he's certainly not the only one. That's a really good way to look at that verse showing, wow, a thousand to three or four. Okay, his kindness is a lot better. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? For sure. But so often we get this this fairy tale picture of christianity that just says oh just believe in jesus and everything is magical and heavenly and floaty and good and it's just not that way that's not the picture god he wants relationship with humans he wants fellowship but he wants it in righteousness. And so when there is sin, everything that opposes righteousness, there must be something to to pay, if you will. And God has done amazing, miraculous things to seemingly either minimize or or eliminate so much of that. And, And so, again, we get sort of stuck in that fantasy world where shouldn't everything just be okay? I mean, isn't God love and everything, right? But look, this is real stuff. And so people living across human history have occasionally had to suffer because of sin. And in fact, if you want to get real technical about it, pretty much Every bad thing that we suffer, whether it's, oh, yeah, uh, a snake bit me and I had to go get a shot because it could have killed me. Or, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Just make up anything you want. That is no different than, well, uh, I happen to be a Jewish person alive when we got sacked by Babylon and taken away out of Israel. What do you mean they're the same? They sound very different. Well, but they were all the result of sin. Mm. My mom dying from Alzheimer's is a result of sin. Was it her sin specifically? I don't know. I doubt it. It seems like more of a a group thing, if you will. Sin is in the world, and so these horrible diseases happen, that kind of stuff. But in the end, we can blame everything on sin. And so we, I, I think it's good for all of us to recognize the problem that sin is. 
what it causes. And we, as Christians, I think our lives, seeking the kingdom, walking in the image of God, I think that we can diminish some of the burden or some of the weight of that sin and the punishment of that sin, but we can't do it all. God did that, but the story includes death, resurrection, kingdom, world to come, all of those things. It's it's just not as simple as God fixed it and now everything's happy. Hmm. I don't know. Any it, of that speak to? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's that classic Jewish tension of it's not, you're not going to find a perfectly cut, you know, black and white answer to this situation right. that we see in the reality of the biblical story. And it just, I'm glad you brought up that stuff at the end about the reality of sin in the world, because I, it made me think of like the apostle Paul. He has, he has so many phrases in his letters in the new Testament, but like a one in particular is in his letter to the Romans in chapter six, um, verse two, uh, he, he just says this, statement about those who are taking up this message of Jesus into their lives they he says like we are those who have died to sin it's it's this nature of we as followers and disciples are pursuing this thing that is going to be permanently present in the kingdom and the world to come like god is going to once and for all forever put to death the thing that causes, you know, everything from the snake bite to the exile to yeah. cancer, whatever. He's going to put to death sin itself. So that's just a really good reminder to to think about. Yeah. Samuel, do me a favor. Read that sentence again. We are those who have died to sin. Okay. Now this is for me, and it's for you, and it's for everybody listening. Does that sound like you? <laughs> Paul states it like, hey, this is who we're supposed to be. Now, I'm not saying this from the perspective of any of us need to be perfect. I actually hope that any of us, some of us, can grow to that point. Of course, you've got your whole previous life where, you know, and again, you're not Jesus, you're not sinless, but we can attain that goal. I think we should at least aim for it. And so if Paul saw it that way, expected it to be that way, Jesus, I think we've showed all through the Gospels, expect it to be that way. Why do we continue to live as if sin isn't such a big deal? Mm. You know, and and it's not always exactly that. I mean, I think if you just ask people, hey, is sin bad? They'd go, yeah. But it, it's... uh. We're, we're unwilling, this is a better way to say it, we are unwilling to really dig and find out exactly what sin is and exactly what righteousness is so that we can pursue it with our whole heart, our whole life. Mm. That's our shortcoming. And Paul, Paul expects it, and not just Paul. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, that's a good one, Samuel. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's almost as if, and I'm I'm not saying that you or me or people who listen to the podcast. It's just a general statement within the Western Church. Uh, 
like in re- how they have a relationship to the reality of sin. It's almost as if they treat sin as this inoperable tumor within their lives that they can't get rid of. And, you know, then that resorts to statements like, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's just who I am. But I think God is his response to that is like, no, like I've given you a tool that can help you cut that tumor out. Like you may not be able to get every single like cancerous cell of sin and death out of your, uh, you know, that spot of your life because, you know, we're still within this broken body, but like he's given us a tool to be able to operate on that tumor, to be able to try to remove as much of it as possible in our lives while we still have the opportunity. Yeah. And as we always have to say, Samuel, does that save you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We do it because we are saved. It's who we are called to be as human. And we would say as Christian. It's it's a good goal. It's not burdensome. In fact, it is true liberty and true freedom. Mm. So, yeah. All right. Anything else? No, I think I <laughs> I prevented us from going any farther after that section. <laughs> That's okay. That's It's good stuff to talk about. It's good stuff. All right. Well, we've got one more little bit where it's it's not really a woe, but he kind of uh, follows up with just a sort of a lament of his own, Jesus, a lament of his own. And we'll start the next episode with it, and then we'll move on. I think the topic is going to kind of shift. It'll be different. So anyway, we'll just have to pick that up next time. Let's shut this thing down. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.